I'm always fascinated to talk to a filmmaker whose career features a major shift. My interview subject today, Kevin McDonald, was for a very long time a documentary director, exclusively. And then at a certain point in his career, the opportunity came for him to make the jump into features, something he never thought would happen and didn't really anticipate and didn't know that he was ready for, but he grabbed it. And as he outlines today in our interview, he applied so much of what he learned and studied in documentary film and filmmaking in general to his first narrative project, which was The Last King of Scotland back in 2006. This was a huge movie, um, won an Oscar. And Kevin McDonald had already won Oscars as a documentary filmmaker. He was very celebrated, very talented uh, with Touching the Void, among others. But one of the most fun things about talking to him today, and I think you'll find in this interview, is that he's truly a student of film. He made docs about filmmaking, and he defined, discovered his own style through that process. So here at No Film School, where we're always talking about different ways of learning or honing or developing, we often come up against this idea of, can you learn from watching? And Kevin McDonald is a great example of someone who did. Uh, we talk about how his latest film, The Mauritanian, which is coming out on February 12th, takes a lot of what he learned, even from some unlikely places buried deep in film history, and brings them to the fore and helps him direct actors. Um, the film features a number of major stars and a really noteworthy performance by Tahar Rahim. Uh, highly recommend it. But uh, let's hear it from Kevin himself. The first thing that comes to my mind, and I want to go back and talk about a lot of the films in your career, but the timing of this project is interesting. It's based on a book. Um, and in the last, you know, number of years, we've seen a lot of sort of revisionist history on what the Bush administration and some of these things that were happening then in Guantanamo were really like. It's great that there's this project coming, this reminder of what was happening then. Um, but can you tell me about how you got a hold of it and when you got a hold of it? Like, when did you start your, your involvement in this story? The first thing to say, I guess, is that actually, although the kind of focus of this story is way back in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, the, the story itself is still ongoing because, first of all, Guantanamo is still open, still got 40 people in it. Secondly, because Mohamedou, who's the central character of this, who is the Mauritanian, he um, only got out of Guantanamo in 2016. He's still subject to no fly orders from the US government, he can't travel, he's not allowed visas. So in a way, this is an ongoing thing. Um, but for me, I see, I don't see this as a film necessarily about the politics of the Bush era. That's not what made me want to do it. I didn't want to make a, a, a movie about the, the, the war on terror. I wanted to make a movie about this individual. I was fascinated by him. He's such, a, such an intriguing, and empathetic person. And I was struck by the fact that everyone who makes films or tells stories about this period does not 
really ever show the point of view of the Muslim man accused of terror. Hmm. That's not, yeah. that's a point of view which is utterly lacking. And there's a kind of dehumanizing thing that's gone on, um, an othering that's gone on, obviously, for a long time. And actually, I wanted to tell a story about a, a human being. And it's as simple as that. When did you first read the book? Well, I read some extracts from the book when it came out in 2016 here in the UK. It was in the Guardian newspaper. And then a year or two later, Benedict Cumberbatch's company sent it to me, um, along with a very rough first draft script that they had. And I read the book and I thought it was a fascinating kind of document of the times. And you could see that Mohamedou, who wrote it, had done so under really difficult circumstances. He'd never been able to edit it. So it was kind of, it's a bit messy. It's a bit, bit of this, bit of that, bit of this. Yeah. Uh, and it's written also partly as a kind of legal, legal testimony. And so I couldn't actually see it really as a film to begin with. And then the producers, it was Benedict's company and a guy called Lloyd Levin said to me, you should speak to Mohamedou. Don't say no, just speak to Mohamedou first. So I got on Skype with him. I expected somebody who was going to be, a, a, you know, an angry, resentful, maybe even broken person. And instead I found somebody who's full of joy, who's very funny, who speaks English like a 19-year-old Marine. So it's full of F this, F that, you know, hey, bro, dude. There's a lot of that stuff going on, and it's really weird and unexpected. But he's also, you know, he's so thoughtful. He's had a lot of time to think. He's very well read, and he loves American popular culture. And that's one of the strange things is that here's a guy who has been locked up by America, who's been subject to all of his awful treatment, and who still loves this fundamental aspect of America. And he, he, says, he says in the film, actually, there's this whole bit about, he talks about, right at the end, he talks about how when he was growing up, he watched Law and Order and Ellen Beale and how he had this <laughs> idea about what American justice was. And it was like this shining light. Yeah, it's such a crazy contrast to have grown up with that and to have lived what he lived. Yeah. And I think that's the thing is, you know, America is for a lot of the world this beacon or has been this sort of beacon. And people like Mohamedou, you know, he he really resents the government that he has himself in Mauritania. And he's always had, you know, the military dictatorships and this, you know, they're nominally now democracy, but it's not that free. He um, he actually, I think if, if he was offered the chance to move to the United States, he would still today. Um, so he's a bundle of contradictions and, and that's what made me think this is what an interesting character. This is not the cliche in any form. And so that's what I set out to think I'm going to make this film and make it about this, this character. Obviously you spoke to him, you got to know him, but he's not credited really. Like, was he around the film in any capacity? What did he think? We, of the we couldn't have made it without him because, yeah, you know, it was important to me. Uh, I'm a come from documentary background. I always start with the sort of the facts, the reality, and then sort of, you know, drift away from that if yeah. I have to. It was important to me that what we show of what happens in Guantanamo, down to the, you know, the what the uniforms are like, what how the the locking up works, how the chaining works, 
what the guards say, or that, that actually we got all that detail right. Did you I, go to Guantanamo? I'm sorry to cut you off. No, I didn't. I didn't go to Guantanamo. I couldn't go to Guantanamo. They wouldn't let me come. But also, right. to be honest, it's changed so much. There's brand new buildings. It's a different place than what it was then. And if you go to Guantanamo, you don't get to see any of the prisoners, obviously. That makes sense, right? <laughs> Can yeah. you tell us how did you how did you get a sense of exactly what it was like? Did you go off? Did you do research? Did you, your team research beyond just his testimony or his diaries? But well, his testimony was his testimony was the most important thing because he, sure. he has an incredible memory, so he was able to say, you know, this is how wide this cell was. This is how long it was. This is he would even remember, you know, how many holes there are in the fencing Amazing. between him and the and the next cell because. You know, he had nothing to do but can't. And so, um, but then we also spoke to a guard who was there at the same time as him, who was incredibly helpful, a guy called Steve, who who is depicted in the film. Yeah. Um, we spoke to obviously the lawyers and there are photos on the internet actually of Guantanamo taken by guards. It's it's a bit tricky to figure out which ones are real because some there's some that aren't actually Guantanamo and also to figure out which period they're from. So uh, the production designer, Michael Carlin, spent a lot of time talking to talking to Mohamedou and to Steve the guard saying, you know, this it, this shot here taken by a guard, is that the same room you were in, the same kind of space you were in? And he would go, no, no, it's more like this one. And there's a lot of backwards and forwards on that. So yeah, that was, it, it was it was really important to Mohamedou that we get all of that right. Because his line was, well, you know, the American government spent millions of dollars preventing people from seeing inside this place. And so this movie, should show people it's important that it has the responsibility to show people really what it was like and that and he meant he meant not just you know what the torture methods were or whatever which are all accurate to what happened but he also meant um just the detail the nitty-gritty of it it's it's amazing and it's an opportunity for audiences to get that look insight to that that they won't get anywhere else i think um you mentioned kind of coming from documentary and it's a good segue to go back earlier in your career because you've had a really interesting, you know, dual, dual things that you've been doing consistently between some great docs, often music, and then like narrative film. I guess tell me how you got started in documentary, or what was sort of the beginning of, of for, as a filmmaker. What were your first? Well, I wanted to, I wanted to be a journalist when I was at college, and um, now of course I'm like, thank God I didn't become a journalist because there's no job. <laughs> But I wanted to be, I desperately wanted to be, I couldn't get a job doing it. I started, I was kind of unemployed, doing odd jobs here and there. And I started recording with my brother on a home video camera, high eight camera back in the early nineties. We made uh, little documentaries for fun about things, little short films. We had a friend who worked in a post-production house in London and he would edit at night for us and whatever. And, and then, you know, one thing got, one little film got seen by somebody who said, oh, do this little thing for the BBC. I got a paid job, got 500 bucks, you know, and then, and then that led to another thing, another thing. And I got into documentary and I realized that documentary really was, was obviously a form of journalism. And I really liked being the excuse to be nosy and ask people any question you wanted. You know, when you got a camera there, when you got a camera, you could get away with anything. And so I did that for a number of years. I wrote a book about documentary, edited a book about documentary, um, which was really an excuse to learn the history of the form and to kind of, because in that time in the nineties in Britain, we had incredible documentary culture on television. Every night of the week, 
there would be a couple of documentaries on that you could watch. There were only like four channels at that time in the UK, and there would be at least two documentaries on every night. And they were pretty high quality, and they had a big audience. Can you tell me more about the book? I'm really interested. Like, what was it, a research book? Did it inform your style, or did it, did it help you discover your style? It helped me discover my style. It was a book called Imagining Reality, the Faber book of documentaries, published by Faber and Faber, who have published a lot of great film books. Yeah. I did it with a guy called Mark Cousins, who is a friend of mine, who you might know now. He's a, he's a, he's a very well-known film historian. He's done a whole series of documentaries about cinema. Um, he recently did one about women in film. Before that, he did a, like a 30-hour history of world cinema. And Wow. He uh, and I worked on that together, and they and you know I think the idea was really to see what are the forms of documentary that have been adopted around the world. What are the different approaches people have taken? I think I was working in television in Britain in the doc, in documentary scene, and it was kind of always quite formulaic. There was a certain way you approach things. They were fifty minutes long. They were seen once and then disappeared. And I wondered kind of is that all there is i suppose and i looked at so i was looking at you know what did they do in russia and what did this filmmaker do in india and and learning just different ways you could you know what documentary could be and i got very excited by that and part of that was just understanding american documentary which at that time was really the only country which had a real tradition of theatrical documentaries and i thought i want to do that i was i saw when i saw when we were kings and I saw Hoop Dreams and Crumb, which were these 90s, quite successful theatrical documentaries. And I thought, I want to do that. And I got together with a producer and we made a film called One Day in September, which was, I think, pretty much the first theatrical documentary made in Britain for years and years and years. And it was about the Munich Olympic Games massacre in 1972. And it was a kind of... I remember seeing it. I remember yeah. everything about it. Yeah. <laughs> it was an investigative, investigative kind of documentary. But the conceit for me was, I wonder if you could make a documentary like a thriller. Could you? How would you tell a documentary like a thriller? And that, I sort of, you know, went into it with that mindset. We made it for cinema. And it won the Academy Award. And we were... You know, I was young, 30 years old or whatever, and didn't didn't know anything from anything. I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to carry on doing. I'm going to make more of these documentaries for cinema. Did you just have tons of things fall at your feet to do next? Like, what did you, how did you navigate that, you know, suddenly at that level? Well, I actually thought, I thought I would have tons of things, but of course, <laughs> nobody, you, know, you win a documentary Oscar and nobody really cares, you know, let's make it. <laughs> It's just crazy that you can win any Oscar and have people not care. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah well, it's definitely true. And uh, and uh, so I made a couple of different things, and then well, you made a. Uh, I, there's a couple of things I want to point out that you did because I'm I'm really interested, particularly given you know no film school and what we are. You've studied a lot and you covered a lot of like the making of movies and the people who make films. So from writing the book to you did something called Chaplin's Goliath. You did mm-hmm. a Howard Hawks movie documentary. Yeah. Hawks is like a great giant yeah. of American cinema, not to, to say nothing yeah. of Chaplin, of course. And then you did a brief history of Errol Morris. So yeah. you're like a student of film. Yeah, truly, right? no, I am. And, and uh, I loved film. And I, and I think it was by studying film and being interested in film that I got into filmmaking and, and, under, and you know, understood a little bit about how, you know, how you go about it. So I suppose in a way I'm like, 
I'm like those American filmmakers of the you know early 70s who were the first kind of generation who'd grown up loving cinema, the sort of the, 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 the Scorsese's, the Coppola's, the Bogdanovich's particularly. Yeah, or, and it, I mean, it even reminds me prior to that, like, you know, Truffaut being a writer about movies and, and doing interviews with, you know, Hitchcock and then suddenly yeah. striking out, but having built that knowledge base. So tell me about like a brief history of Errol Morris, because it seems like you were once again diving into the form of the doc. Yeah, I mean, I... I Errol Morrissey's Thin Blue Line was like a total touchstone for me. Mm -hmm. It's still one of my favorite documentaries. And it was so different than everything that was going on around it at the time. So I was, yeah, I was, I was obsessed with him and with that film. And the opportunity arose to make a movie for, um, not for IFC, but for something that was a forerunner of IFC, if I remember correctly, a Bravo maybe or something like that was... Anyway, they I made um, they they asked me, you know, would you want to make a documentary about him? And I was like, yeah, sure, of course I can learn a lot from him. And that was why I did it. It was like I can learn how he goes about it, how he thinks about things. So yeah. I was looking at it all as an opportunity to learn how to be a filmmaker, I suppose. It's so cool that that comes after winning an Oscar for making a documentary. Like you were still <laughs> you could learn, right? That's worth noting. I've um, continued to be always just a, you know, a lover of film. And I made another documentary about a documentarian um, called Humphrey Jennings, who's not at all yeah. in the United States really, but to me is one of the, one of the greats and influenced me, continues to influence me. I've just done a film which is showing at Sundance tomorrow, which is called Life in a Day 2020, which is uh, a sequel to a film I did 10 years ago, a documentary, which is made up of clips from YouTube yeah. that shot on the same day around the world, Thousands of people send things in from around the world and we edited it into a kind of collage documentary. That's inspired, that whole project is inspired by something that Humphrey Jennings, this British documentary maker, did called Mass Observation. And that was done using diaries. He asked people around Britain to write diaries all on the same day, record what they did. He'd ask them some questions. What's on your mantelpiece? What's in your pocket? Yeah. Etc. Etc. And 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 I thought, oh, I can steal that idea. So there's another example of you know going back to the past in order to find ideas that you know have been forgotten and to reuse them. And so um, yeah, so I've got a, as I say, I've got a sequel to that film. It's coming out. It was shot in the middle of the pandemic, obviously, with um, in the middle of the BLM movement um, on the 25th of July, and it's totally cosmopolitan. You know, filmed all over the world. Um, I want to, you know, you made quickly, I mean, being Mick, big document, you, your first big music doc, right? Which you would do a number of times. But well, I did this the... one about Mick Jagger because I'd just done one day in September, which had sort of done very well, but also been highly controversial because it posited some theories about what had really happened in this, this big, highly controversial terrorist attack. I got newspaper articles sort of condemning me in Israel and Germany and a very famous academic called Edward Said wrote a whole thing in a British newspaper about how, you know, how I was a, I was a stooge of imperialism and all that. And it was kind of like, I thought, Oh my God, this is so heavy and difficult. And uh, I was just trying to make a good film. And really? Yeah. Can you tell me more about that part about like intention versus reception? Because you've had that experience you've, you've taught and this new film is going to, you're going to tread into those waters again, but intention as an artist or filmmaker, and then like how the world sees you as like, whether or not you're didactic in some way, or you're motivated by some agenda, like what is the dis, dis, disconnect there for you? 
Wow, that's a really big topic. And I'm sort of in the, <laughs> in sort of in the middle of it with the Mauritanian at the moment yeah. because the reception thus far has been pretty controversial, I suppose, and pretty pretty mixed. Do you seek these things out or by, is it by accident, I guess, is my first question about it? Or is it just... Well, I, I go into these things thinking people, everyone's going to love it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, no, I mean, I think if you tackle controversial subjects and difficult subjects, and it can take people a while to understand. But also, I think that, you know, with One Day in September, the experience of that taught me a lot of lessons, and it particularly taught me, taught me not to try and take it so personally. And um, mm. but, but anyway, the consequence of that at that time was I, I wanted to do something frivolous, and I was phoned yeah. up Mick Jagger, who said, you want to make a film about me? And I thought that's got to be about the most frivolous offer you can ever have. So I did it. Wait, he called you and asked you to make a documentary about him? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's got to be one of the coolest moments anyone can have is getting a call from Mick Jagger. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so that was kind of like a fun thing to do. And the, the film didn't turn out so great because he, you know, he had control over it, which taught me another lesson, which is don't ever do a documentary about someone unless you have final cut. Uh, ever since then i've um i've stuck to that and you know i won't do something where 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 i don't have final cut or very close to it but i think this whole idea of controversy you know is very is very difficult obviously my new film the mauritanian is a kind of film which is really about forgiveness and about humanizing someone who's been dehumanized who's the you know um, the, the muslim man accused of terror some people find that very challenging and they find that yeah. up- upsetting. To me, that feels, I feel like I failed if they don't feel the same sense of common humanity as, as I do. And because that's what, that's what I'm going to, and I'm not trying to make a political point. I never really am trying to make a political yeah. point. I'm trying to make a kind of wider um, humanist point, I guess. Yeah, no, I mean, it seems like in a way that his whole story and the way you approach it is to try and show us things we would not have expected, to try and humanize and debunk and, you know, just throw a curveball at the expectation of who someone like that is and what their story is. Exactly. It strikes me as amazing that, you know, even this at this distance, to do that would be controversial. Um, yeah, I agree. But it, but, it, but, it, but it is. And, you know, I've just been doing a lot of publicity over the last few days for the film and I've been accused of aiding and abetting terrorism and, and of, <laughs> of glorifying a terrorist. And But I have to explain to people, well, you know, he's not a terrorist. He spent 14 years imprisoned without any charges being brought, without any evidence being brought against him. You know, in what way does that make him a terrorist? If you were in prison for that length of time and just because somebody said you were a terrorist, does that make you a terrorist? But, yeah, I, I'm yeah. fascinated by the fact that it was wrongful imprisonment in the first place, but all people are, or all many people glom onto is that like you're, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. But but I think, but I think you know, there's, 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 strong, there's strong feelings about this, but I, I, uh-huh. I, and I understand from a political point of view why people can you know be sensitive about these issues but i don't understand how somebody can feel like they're supporting the values of the west the values of america the values of europe without upholding the rule of law and the basic principles that you know you're innocent until you're proven guilty 
that somebody should not be detained and tortured. Um, these things seem uncontroversial to me as points of view. So I don't feel bad if I'm yanking the chain of these people who disagree with those fundamental principles, because I think it's important to confront people with these, you know, what to me are self-evident principles. Just jumping back into your career timeline, it's appropriate that Last King of Scotland, which is huge, excellent movie, it seems like once again, you know, treading into some very tricky real life waters. But mm. um, tell me a little bit about that project and getting started on it. And of course, you know, working with all these great talents and it being narrative, you know, that it's starting to cross a little bit, I think, in your career, right, between uh, things that really happened and reality and a documentary background and, and narrative features. Yeah. So I was still very much a kind of team documentary player. And um, I made this documentary called Touching the Void, which is about two mountain climbers. It's a true story, obviously, of two mountain climbers climbing an unclimbed peak in the Andes and this accident that happens. It's a very dramatic and thrilling story. And But the only way that I could make it was to use some dramatic reconstruction. And ah. so... I did that slightly reluctantly because I thought it was usually pretty cheesy and didn't work as a concept. Yeah, that's such a tough thing to pull off. Yeah, so I did that and with the inspiration, I guess, of Errol Morris, you know, because he had done yeah. that in, in The Thin Blue Line. And so I'd learned, you know, some ideas from him, I guess, about how you would approach that. And, and so I did that movie and it was hugely successful it was the first documentary that ever won the best British film of the year at the BAFTAs. It made a lot of money at the box office in the U S and in around the world. And so suddenly people were approaching me saying, do you want to make a film? Do you want to make a proper film? <laughs> and uh, I thought. Like what you hadn't been, had been doing was not a proper film. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know what, if people are willing right now to give me the money to make a narrative feature, I thought, well, I'm not sure if I'm interested in it that much, but this might be the only chance I get. So yeah. I'll do it. And I, I developed a few things. And one of them was uh, a book, which I had read when I briefly worked at Faber and Faber, the publishers, after, after I had um, edited this book about documentaries, I had worked there briefly at the publishers doing some of the film books. At that time, I'd read this book, The Last Game of Scotland by Giles Foden, which was a, a kind of fictionalized version of Idi Amin, in the 1970s, the Ugandan dictator and his relationship with this Scottish doctor. And Very heart of darkness. Yes. Um, but really, it's a film about something which I didn't even know the term for because I don't think it really existed then. But it's, I guess, white privilege. You know, mm. it's about the theme of the film is about this young Scottish doctor who goes to Africa looking for adventure and kind of fun and who thinks that his white skin is going to protect him and that that gives him a privilege and he gets himself sucked in deeper and deeper and deeper into this situation and he's a very ambivalent character that the, the Scottish doctor he's not a straightforward hero and that was very interesting I think that's something that I've continued to be interested in is is not having heroes who are straightforwardly good or bad Right. Um, and um, 
anyway, so I, so I, so I made that movie. I, the, pretty much the first time I'd ever been on a proper movie set was day one on my own movie. Were you and, terrified or were you? Yeah, like, I was okay. totally terrified. I was totally terrified. I was bluffing all the way. And, uh, <laughs> Love it. Uh, and it worked. And it worked. I mean, yeah. And I think, you know, in some ways not knowing when you, you know, is liberating. Yeah. That's what they say, right? That's what like the, yeah. When you try to be too professional, you just do it like everyone else. Yes. Before we move on from that point, because it's fascinating, especially for people interested in, you know, making career changes or starting things like, what was it that you made that if you can reflect back that some of that, I don't know, but I'm going to do this. Like, was it partly things that came from the documentary style or just, I want to do it this way and I'm not thinking about how I've done it before and it's worked. No, because I didn't really understand how you made a, fi- a, a fiction film. So I would shoot it like a documentary. I had a DP who is a, who's a great DP I worked with a few times called Anthony Dodd-Mantle, who'd worked with Danny Boyle a bit and worked with, he's, a, he, he's not Danish, but he lives in Denmark. He's, he was, you know, part of the um, kind of dogma group in the, in the 90s, early 2000s. And so quite rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And so he was willing to kind of go along with it. Um, yeah. and sort of just, you know, we're shooting on 16 millimeter. Um, we're not doing conventional coverage necessarily. We're not shooting things in a conventional way. Obviously nowadays I would be terrified because I think, oh my God, I'm going to get into the cutting room and I'm going to not have the material to tell the story. But in certain ways, when you just shoot from the hip like that, there's a rawness and a freshness that actually, you know, comes across the finished film. And the, when you look at the finished film, it's very, it is very r- rough and raw. And, yeah certain ways it's not technically very polished but it has real feeling and and real um great performances because i think the actors working in those circumstances are kind of allowed to try whatever they like and go quite far and things and i think i realized then that actually taking a kind of more loose documentary approach is really actors for the most part really respond to that because they, they 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 like to play, they like to try things out, and that's what I like. I like to allow accidents to happen, to allow little improvisations to occur, or whatever. I often think that there's two types of fiction directors: there's the kind of the children of Hitchcock, and then there's the children of Rossellini. You know, and the Hitchcock mm. children they kind of want to control every single thing, every eyebrow lift, every yeah, every uh, color and whatever. And whereas people like me who come then the Rossellini line, we're thinking, how do we how do we capture the spontaneity of life? And I think those are two different approaches. I think that, you know, as much as I would, you know, if I wanted to make a kind of a more um, Hitchcockian kind of film, I, you know, it wouldn't be very good because it's not what comes naturally to me. Yeah. And have you, would you say that that has continued to inspire is that still i mean you're saying children of rossellini so even in your more recent projects does it continue to be sort of the guiding light like i want to create an environment where spontaneity exists yes i mean i think more recently and in the mauritanian for instance i worked with a dp who i've known for a long time who worked on one day in september with me way back then he's he's a german guy who lived in britain and now lives in los angeles called alvin kuchler who's worked with, again, he's worked with Danny Boyle and Sunshine and and um, Steve Jobs, and he's worked with Lynn Ramsey and a lot of great filmmakers. And he's, you know, not to stereotype the Germans, but he's the opposite of me in that he's very organized. <laughs> right. 
He likes to know exactly what he's doing. He's got a great photographic eye. And we'd worked together on documentaries, but not on a fiction. And actually having him on this, I think slightly on this movie slightly changed my approach. And um, I, he sort of forced me to be more disciplined and I pushed him to be more improvisational. And so we, we found an interesting an interesting halfway house. I think from a technical point of view, Mauritanian is probably my best made film. And I think a large part of that is to do with Alvin and uh, the way he pushed me. There's still fundamentally though, this room for improvisation and particularly with Tahar Rahim's performance, you know, Tahar is an actor who really thrives on. Yeah. I was going to say the center, it feels like the center is this kind of uh, riveting live wire performance that feels somewhat honest, real, hard to capture. So I would imagine that some of your documentary approach to actors and working with actors really shows through with him. Um, yes, I think so. I think that's right. And he, you know, certain actors like to work like that and, and others don't necessarily. But, and I think that an actor like Jodie Foster, who plays the lawyer, Nancy Hollander in the film, yeah, she's not of that, you know, she doesn't work in that vein. Yeah, so I was just going to ask, can you tell me about which actors don't? But you went right there on your own. But yeah, it must be somewhat intimidating, though. I mean, in the sense, I mean, you've worked with a lot of great talent. You've directed Oscar-winning performances, but she's, a, you know, she's a filmmaker. She's a she's an iconic performer on screen. So having her, like, you know, not fit quite that style, but having to adjust to her a little bit. Can you? How, as you were saying before I cut you off, like what, how do you differ within the same film? You know, I think first of all, she loved working with Tahar. They got on like a house on fire and she, and she sort of came alive actually as a performer when she was with him, because I think she found it very exciting because it was very different than what she's used to in in a more conventional kind of American filmmaking kind of style. Um, you know, and Tahar is sort of trying it this way, trying it that way, you know, taking it way over the top and then taking it way under. And I think she um, enjoyed watching that. And I, th- I think that in subtle ways, maybe it influenced her performance, but generally she's a very intellectual performer. And she, well, like most actors, even when they're intellectual and, and prepared, actually they don't really know what they're going to do until they do it. Is what I find, you know, even an actor who sort of says to you, I'm going to do this line like this, and this is what this means, whatever. Actually, when they're in the thick of it, it's why, re- it's why rehearsal is kind of pointless often, because I rehearse in order to get the script right so that nobody's arguing about the script lines, but I don't rehearse for performance because until everyone's actually doing it, you know, and actually yeah. the camera's rolling and y- you're in that heightened state, I don't find that you really know how the scene is going to play. You don't know what the performance is going, to, is going to do. How do you tell them to rehearse without letting it be part of informing their performance? How do you manage that as a director? I don't, I don't manage it. I just find that that's the way that, you know, you could sit in a rehearsal room with actors and you can, you know, sit there and go through the lines, have them read it. And some actors really don't want to give you anything in that circumstance. They're like, I'm, I'm saving it. And I don't, and it's just almost like a superstitious thing. If I give it to you now, I won't be able to give it to you then. Yeah. And um, other actors like will go for it, but if they're the only one in a group, then it's kind of pointless. And I think, <laughs> I think that if um, my experience generally, and that maybe it's just the actors I've worked with, but my experience is that 
there's a lot of use of going through for a few days the script with your with your performers and talking about it and getting all that intellectual stuff out and adjusting the lines and cutting lines and all of that because it saves a huge amount of time on the set you're not arguing about what does this scene mean what's the intention of this line you're not doing that so but actually i just i i've never worked with actors who want to get up there and you know do it like a play and in the, the moment and i think i sort of think that if you do do that i think i share that superstition that in a funny way then it's going to be always artificial on the day and maybe that's just my documentarian thing i feel like it's only going to be real once <laughs> and uh it's a bit like when you do a documentary interview um i always avoid talking to the people I'm going to interview before I have them on camera. Because I, again, feel that even if I talk to them on the phone, I get someone else to talk to them, arrange the interview, whatever. But if I talk to them, then it's going to be like, well, we've already had this conversation. They've already performed for me once. Yeah. Where did, did you and, develop that on your own? Or did, was that in research and learning? And, and that's something talk? I developed. Yeah, I think I developed that on, you know, on my own. And just through through experience. And I think that you want that fresh performance, whether it be in a real person or whether it be an actor, to be the thing that you've got on camera. So, I, I mean, I often drive the actors mad by saying, okay, let's uh, let's roll on the rehearsal, which basically is like means it's not a rehearsal, of course. <laughs> right. Because yeah. I always think that when they rehearse it, they're going to make it, they're going to do something wrong. And the wrong thing is probably going to be the right thing. Ah, uh, yeah. So you're really looking like you, you go out of your way to look for that sort of quote unquote wrong thing, spontaneous yeah. thing. So it really yeah. worked with someone like Taharahim in this case. Like that's like a perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. There are moments in the film, some of the best moments in the film, you know, a few of the lines, but mo but a lot of just the physical performance are things that, you know, we started off, you know, uh, you know, over here to way to the right. And we ended up way to the left doing something that, that you couldn't know until you were actually doing it for real in the room. I mean, there's a moment in the end of the film where Tahar gives a speech to the court. And um, it's actually the thing, the first thing he did was, was the last scene in the film, which was a kind of a terrible... <laughs> consequence of Jodie Foster being ill over Christmas and she couldn't come back. And so we had to find some things to do with Tahar out of, out of sequence. One of the only things we could find was the, was his last, his last scene. So we did that first, which is a, you know, it's a terrible thing to have to do, but um, he, you know, totally got with it and blew us all away with how he delivered that speech. And that was the moment I thought, okay, he's going to just be, incredible in this but there's a moment where and he only did it once you know he did maybe 10 takes but he only did this once he he, he turns at the end of his speech to the guard and says did they hear me and this a really doubting kind of way which is not a line that was in the script and it says so much about his state of mind and his vulnerability and his desire to be listened to as a person heard as a person and if I had asked Tahar beforehand, oh, are you going to say a line at the end? He would have said, I don't know. No, probably not. You know, I keep thinking, because we also talked about how you made a Hawks documentary there. Like Red River was a movie that combined like John Wayne, who was classic and straightforward and um, 
I'm blanking on his name, but the younger star, a Montgomery Clift, who is all yeah. method and how they pushed each other to be interesting. And, and every time you talk about it, I think that's something so unique about that melding styles. Uh, you have a DP who on this, who is a little more formal versus your, you know, documentary background and you combined Tahar and um, Jodie Foster and all of that. It's very cool. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I love, funnily enough, uh, Red River is my favorite Hawks movie, but it's also in a way the least Hawksian of movies, of his movies, because I find actually the kind of slightly heightened theatrical quality to a lot of his films, the slightly raised eyebrow thing mm-hmm. that they have going on. Um, ultimately, I, these days, I find that all a bit too mannered. Yeah, but Red River feels psychologically real, and it's because of those two central performances. And I hadn't thought about it like that, but you're right. It's because it's because um, you know, as is well known, they 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 they're they're totally different. You know, Wayne and Montgomery are totally different. Um, yeah, artists. they're like pushing each other on screen, but also off screen. You can feel it. <laughs> it's just like yeah. something is like there's an edge there the whole time, and it and it and that era of filmmaking really stands out. Um, but it's an interesting thing to try to recreate, you know, that dynamic that makes a film spark crackle, you know, I'm really curious, you know, this film is coming out. You've been, we've talked about it. Um, you've had a career that winds around. And I always ask people if you were advising somebody who's starting today, the way that the industry has changed and things have changed, obviously it's different than when you started, but what would your advice be? Well, that's, it's always so difficult when people ask that because, you know, the circumstances are so different today. Right. Who knows whether the theatrical film is going to even survive this pandemic or in what form it's going to survive, what the pressures are going to be on it. Yes. Um, but, you know, I think the most important thing in being a filmmaker of any sort, you know, any genre and documentary or animation or whatever is to have an idea have an idea that's different than what other people have. And I think that technique is overpriced in our era for some reason. People say to you, oh, it's so well made. And I'm like, well, if you noticed it was so well made, it probably means you weren't that engaged in the film. Mm, And yeah, obviously as a filmmaker, I will, I admire and recognize, you know, beautiful craft. Um, but if that beautiful craft, if you learn that beautiful craft, but it's not at the service of something that really needs to be told, that's something that you feel passionately about, an idea, then it's not worth having. And there are always people around you who can help you with the craft if you don't know the craft. And that's certainly been my experience. And, you know, lucky enough, my film school has been making films. Yeah. I didn't go to film school. I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. And I'm beginning to learn a little bit now, I feel, but it's taken me a long time. And I think that, you know, trust in the, trust in the technicians around you, choose the right people. And, you know, you worry about telling a story that's really worth telling or having a way of telling it that's, that's, that's going to make it compelling and, and, and different for people. Uh, I mean, that's good advice. I, I know it's a tough question, but I really appreciate that answer and a lot of answers because they vary. But that uh, it's a great answer. It's consistent with the choices you've made and the work you've done and why it why it sticks. You know, um, I wish there were more movies made based on someone having an idea they were passionate about and not like, I want to make a movie and I can. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think so. I mean, it's something that strikes me a lot at the moment uh, in the last few years about where cinema is at. And I think it's not a good sign that there are a lot of really brilliantly made movies that actually don't have something worth saying at the heart of them. Uh, I think it says something about the kind of the, how the lack of confidence that people have in film. What kind of films should we be making? What do audiences want to see? And so I think it's a, I think there's a, there's an anxiety of people putting too much pressure into, you know, this is going to be, this is going to be the longest tracking shot of all time. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, as you know, from experience, what you risk is, people ascribing an intent behind what you've done, but that's a risk worth taking, right? You've, you've survived it. It's survivable. I've survived it. Yes. I mean, you know, I, I, I think that, I think that I haven't had, you know, I haven't had a hugely commercially successful career, but I've had a career where I've got to make a lot of different interesting movies, not all of which worked as well as I would hope. And I think you have to, one, one thing you have to, you know, realizes that you, unless you are Hitchcock, you're not going to make masterpiece after masterpiece. And that actually the, the most important thing is to pick yourself up when something doesn't work and carry on. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Uh, that was our interview with Kevin McDonald on the Mauritanian, as well as all of his other stuff. Um, I would have loved to talk forever to Kevin just about like Howard Hawks movies, <laughs> why he likes the ones he does and where he draws inspiration from. And it's, it's always fun to learn from a filmmaker who studies film. I always find that to be enjoyable. Check out on nofilmschool.com all of our gear guides. We are dropping a ton of extremely valuable gear guides, which will take you through what to buy, and why, depending on what your needs are as a filmmaker. And we're covering all kinds of products. This is an exciting new launch, and I can't wait for people to get into it. Um, additionally, please take a moment to like and rate the podcast. Follow us, subscribe to us, but make sure you go over to iTunes and rate this podcast. Obviously, I'd love for you to rate it five stars, but if you think we only deserve one or half a star, then you know, so be it. And let us know in the comments why, so we can get better. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>